Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we have the pleasure of bringing a little something for everyone when talking molds and mycotoxins in today's agriculture. Since molds are everywhere in the environment, we have the opportunity to impact the health and profitability of all animal species and many crops. Joining us at the pub tonight are two guests. The first, Dr. Duarte Diaz, was part of the Real Science Lecture Series back in April. He shared some of the research and mechanisms around mycotoxins. Uh, Duarte, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Hello, everybody. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here. So part of the fun we have here to exchange Duarte is sharing uh, our favorite drinks. So uh, what's in your glass tonight for our discussions? Well, uh, since I'm still on, on office hours, I will go with the academic drink of choice, which is root beer. Root beer. All right. Very well. We'll, we'll let you go. Very strong, on but, but it'll do the job. All right. Good. It is beer. So that's all right. All right. I see you brought a guest with you uh, tonight. I uh, want, want to welcome uh, Dr. Whitlow, and thanks for joining us here tonight at the uh, Real Science Exchange. Um, Lon, can you give us a quick summary of your background and then share with us um, how you got to know Duarte? I spent my career at North Carolina State University. Uh, primarily in extension, um, uh, 90 to 100 percent of my time was spent in extension. And that's how I got uh, interested in mycotoxins is because uh, we kept running into dairy herds that had problems that were unexplainable. They had good nutrition, they had uh, good management, uh, good veterinary care, and yet there was something missing. Something was a problem. And uh, so, um, we had a good program there in uh, at uh, NC State University in mycotoxins. Uh, it was real strong in the poultry area. And those guys uh, encouraged me to look at mycotoxins and uh, the possibility that it might uh, affect dairy cattle. So we started looking and sure enough, we did uh, uh, positively correlate uh, the level of uh, mycotoxins to a loss in uh, performance and problems on these dairy farms. So we started doing a little more uh, uh, research in that area, uh, most of it being applied research. And then along came uh, Duarte from Puerto Rico, and uh, he was looking for a possibility of a degree program. And we were very happy to have him uh, work uh, along with us. And uh, so that kind of got him going in this mycotoxin area. Great. So we got the professor and the student tonight. That's awesome. All right. Um, so you didn't tell us what's in your glass tonight. I'm drinking some uh, Puerto Rican rum on the rocks that uh, right. Duarte provided. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Very nice. Good job, Duarte. Uh, our co-host for tonight's discussion is once again, Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Clay, it's bittersweet to be back uh, in our isolated boxes on this screen once again, since our last few episodes uh, were recorded at the Tri-State Nutrition Conference. Uh, I really enjoyed being with real people, uh, with real drinks uh, in person. But since we're back in front of our screens again, um, tell us what's in your glass. I've gone back to my old standard. I have a, a hard cider here tonight. All right. Very well. 
So tonight I switched it up just a little bit, Clay. I'm drinking a beer. My son goes to, wow. um, yeah, believe it or not. My son goes to Penn State uh, at the Erie campus, and they've got a little brew pub uh, nearby. And I typically stop there um, when I'm out there visiting him. And this is, he brought home for me, he's back home for the summer, my favorite one beer from there. It's called Blood Rain, R-E-I-G-N. <laughs> it's made with uh, blood orange. So it's, it's, it's quite tasty. So cheers, everyone. Thanks for coming to The Real Science Experience. Cheers. <laughs> Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit balchem.com to learn more. Well, Duarte, during uh, the webinar, you kind of started us off with a little bit of history one of the things that intrigued me is that um, the Salem witch trials had an element uh, related to mycotoxins, but you didn't explain that uh, a lot. Would you mind kind of going into that for us? Actually, that's a, a pretty uh, interesting one. When I, when I finished my PhD at um, NC State, um, I was trying to get an opportunity to go do a postdoctoral work in, in Europe. And we had lineup. Dr. Wheeler and I had talked to some colleagues in France and Everything was lined up and, and it didn't work out. Last minute didn't work out because they changed the position or something. And out of last minute, a group out of Italy um, contacted us and said that they would be happy to host me as a as a, a postdoc over there. And the primary person in that group was uh, Gianfranco Piva, who was the director of their nutrition program at a small school there in Piacenza. And um, he actually had a presentation that I always thought it was really unique that he, um, he, he goes through history of major events and he tries to find places where potentially consumption of seeds with mycotoxins based on the symptoms and the type of diets they were eating could have been associated with mycotoxins. And I mean, he has a, about an hour long um, presentation where he, you know, he dwells into some of these topics. And again, some of them are purely hypothetical. Uh, but some of them have actually some some substantial uh, information. And again, if you if you think about uh, the ergot uh, alkaloids and some of the behavioral uh, issues associated, especially the hallucinations, um, then those would match very well with the symptoms uh, seen at that time, but also with the type of diets that were predominant um, in in that in that in that period. So there has been a couple of studies that have looked at you know potentially. Um, you know what? What? What could have been the the associated risk, and and mostly is associated with with ergot alkaloids and and those types of behavioral issues. I mean, I really think it's it, it's pretty harsh to get burned on a stake for eating some granola and some <laughs> and some grain, but uh, <clears throat> but I mean, based on that um, symptomology, um, you could you could potentially see an issue like that. And I remember. Uh, you guys remember a TV show used to be called House MD? Oh, yeah. It was yep. a diagnostic mm -hmm. MD. Um, I remember watching that show, and there was an episode where this lady comes in, and she's hallucinating, right? And it's the only episode <laughs> in that entire TV series where I actually knew what she had before before the MDs in there. And obviously, it turns out that she was uh, she would she would uh, grace and, and pick uh, – fruits and and seeds from the forest near where she was 
and she was actually eating some some grains that were high in uh, ergot alkaloids. So there's there's even more modern take on that uh, as a TV show in the um, 2000s, I guess is what it was. Yeah, very interesting. Probably, uh, probably one of the worst examples of this in history was during uh, World War II. And uh, at that period of time, um, there was certainly a scarcity of food in Europe. And, uh, and farmers couldn't very well get in the field and do much. And so they left a lot of the grains in the field to overwinter. And then people went into those fields during the winter or the next spring and harvested that grain. And the grain was contaminated with T2 toxin. And this is caused, caused uh, uh, many people to die. Very, it was a very, yeah, very uh, severe problem. And along that same line, uh, another interesting story associated with mycotoxins in history is uh, uh, in the early part of World War II, uh, Russia uh, depended upon horses mm -hmm. for their, their uh, cavalry to pull the, um, pull the uh, uh, equipment in the field. And a lot of their horses were dying. And, and uh, so they asked a, a person to investigate this. And he did. He went into the field and, and uh, dis discovered that uh, the hay and straw that was being used for those horses was contaminated with uh, mold and mycotoxins. And that person was uh, Khrushchev, and it contributed to his uh, uh, escalation, you know, in the party. Interesting. Wow. When did we first dis um, uh, discover mycotoxins, specifically maybe in animals? I think as described, we, we, we usually use a historical uh, Turkey X disease in, in, uh, in the UK as the, the first event compounds were isolated and, and described. But again, you can also look back at periods of, you know, the discovery of penicillin uh, in similar, similar fashion. Again, just the compound mm -hmm. used for two different um, uh, reasons, but the, the turkey X disease. Um, what was it? The what, what year was it? Uh, I got to remember that. It's early sixties, nineteen sixty-two, somewhere in there. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. could even go back in the eight, in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, I mean, uh, people knew that moldy feed were was bad for for animals. They didn't know that myco that mycotoxins per se were the cause. cause of that, but they you know they knew we'd known that moldy feed was not good for a long long time. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's those two two important inflections when when the discovery of the compound started to become the norm. Right after that uh, '60s discovery of aflatoxin associated with Aspergillus flavus, and hence the name, uh, and and that. And again, if you really look at the literature since then, the list of you know discovered mycotoxin is is, is exponentially grown. You know. Yeah. Um, if you look for them, you'll find them. Um, I still tell people the best way not to have mycotoxins is not to test for them. So, and I, and I, got, and I got that from Dr. Winlow. So. <laughs> Pharmacologists look for all kinds of compounds produced by moles after the discovery of penicillin. So there were a lot of compounds discovered. Uh, they weren't necessarily associated with animal uh, disease problems or health, health issues. But then as Duarte says, after aflatoxin was discovered, in the early 60s, we started discovering many other things like uh, uh, 
uh, you know, DON, for example, uh, was discovered in this in the seventies. Zeralinone and 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 T uh, two were isolated about the same time, and then just many many more since that time. So were so were the were the first issues in animals? Would, would that have been a poultry and swine? That was that large turkey die off. So there was there was actually animals dying off of a Brazilian okay. nut meal. So yeah, it was it was you know chronic acute, um, pretty pretty severe. And and so there was intensive research on that at the time, 1962, 63, and very. Quickly, they showed that the aflatoxin was transferred into milk uh, at about uh, one or two percent of what's consumed goes into the milk. Now, is aflatoxin the only toxin that uh, we're concerned about making its way into a, uh, a tissue or, or something consumed by humans? I think in, in general terms, if if we're if we're looking at the traditional cuts of meats and 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 byproducts of of uh, livestock industry, um, you know, milk is is the one potentially risk hazard, unless you start looking at things like liver. You know, in, in societies or in or in populations where liver consumption is a high percentage of the diet, then that that kind of breaks the rule, right? Because that's a, a potential area where there could be some some concentration. But the animals do a pretty good job of uh, metabolizing and mobilizing and excreting it. Uh, there's not a lot of storage of it. Um, there is some speculation that okra toxin stores a little bit better uh, because it's been found in hams and, and other cuts of meat. But uh, I think a lot of that is probably happening at the curing stages and it's growing around it. And that's how it's getting contaminated because it hasn't been replicated very well uh, in animal models. Now, I'm going to assume that uh, most, if not all, of the contamination comes in through the feed. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, we when I was in Italy doing my postdoc, we actually did some aerialized. Um, I mean, it's still coming from the feed, right? But I, we did some aerialized uh, research where we we did emulsifications of the toxins and sprayed it up the cow's nose, and then looked at metabolites mm. in the blood. We did it with aflatoxin because at the time, you know, it was one that was very easy to do. But we did several other ones. Um, after we figure out that cows don't like to get sprayed inside their nose and they'll just snot it right back out to you, um, we, we did find several uh, toxins that we can actually identify in the, in the, in the blood flow. And I, I suspect um, for human populations, you know, like feed mill workers in, in, in areas where, where there's maybe not good sanitary practices or uh, use of equipment, that could be a source of, of exposure. I do know also that, for example, in Kenya, when the human populations uh, are exposed to high concentrations, a lot of times is uh, maybe there's a there's a drought or there's a scarcity of, of grain. And so they usually dry them out in the ground. And in order to prevent people from stealing the corn, they would actually put it inside of their houses, like ground their house with, with that. And in those cases, those people are probably, you know, a, a part, a percentage of that high mm -hmm. level of contamination that they're exposed to could be coming from, an aerialized sores. Um, uh, Dr. Willow can tell you a couple of stories about him showing up with a bloody nose if he wants to. <laughs> um, I learned pretty quick uh, uh, and I use my respirator almost all the time, but I I have um, asthma. Uh, you know, I developed asthma in grad school and I've had it uh, all along through. So um, I'm not sure it's mycotoxin related. It's, 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 it's actually uh, large particles uh, in the air related where 
um, lot of dust dust um, uh, particles. But yeah, there, I, I think the other primary source would be you know inhalation. Um, but um, yeah, yeah those, those are the primary uh, um, sources. Yeah, a farmer's lung is associated with uh, breathing in uh, mycotoxins from again moldy feed. So feed is the source, but it does get uh, aerosolized and. And we, and we can breathe it in, and uh, that can be toxic. Are, are any of the feedstuffs more susceptible to molds and mycotoxins, whether it's feed, forage, dry forage, and siled forage? Do you have a feel for that? Um, you know, I, would, I always actually answer that question in the, in the context of, I, I think, you know, corn is a great substrate, but it's also a great substrate because we have a lot of it. Um, so that, that, you know, that it has a, a significant amount of influence in, in the occurrence of the toxin. It, it is a good substrate, but we, we grow an awful lot of uh, corn. But again, if we compare corn to soybean, then you would see that here are two grains that are, you know, the, the, these two are, are produced at similar quantities, right? Um, one much more susceptible uh, than the other. Again, a lot of the stuff that we did when, when I was at, at NC State with Dr. Willow was actually to, to look at forage sources as a potential contaminant and identify that they not only are uh, often contaminated, but sometimes contaminated with a different array of, of, of toxins that we're not um, normally, um, you know, looking for or or accounting in our in our system. So I think the substrate has a lot to do. But I also say, you know, moles and that produce toxins will grow in a building, um, you know, off of you know air particles, right? They, they're pretty adaptable. They're pretty. Um, um, they, they, they can find a ways to, to enter, um, in, in the system and, and, and be viable and, and produce the toxins. I don't know if I said it in the seminar, but there is a really cool study, um, in, in Chernobyl after the Ukraine, um, uh, plant, uh, disaster. Meltdown. Yeah. When they, when they went back in, um, the first thing that they actually saw thriving was this this mold, and what they went and actually looked at the mold, and they found out that the mold had actually adapted to use radiation as a form of energy, and that mold today is in the uh, lunar stage or in the space station because of, of an example of a rapid adapting species. So they're putting up there to see if it's um, if it changes or adapted. And I, I, I want to say it's a fusarium, but it may be an aspergillus, but I can't remember. But it's actually one of those moles that we that we normally uh, associate with, with toxins. So, um, you know, they 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 find a way. Uh, they're pretty good at it. Hmm. I would I would say all feeds are susceptible to moles and, and to producing mycotoxins. But when I talk to dairy farmers, I tell them that silage is their biggest concern. And the reason for that is the silage does make up uh, half of the diet. And uh, you don't bring in new loads of silage. I mean, it's, it's in the silo and you're going to feed that all year. And so if it is contaminated, it's a, it's a big issue. Uh, but with grain, you know, you're going to get a new load next week or next month. Um, the other thing is that we have some very unique mycotoxins that grow in silage that we do not see in grains. And I think that's important for what we, the toxicity that we're seeing in cattle, uh, particularly uh, the penicillium produced mycotoxins, which grow at a low pH 
and with only very little oxygen. And so they will grow in silage. And in many years, penicillium is the most uh, prevalent uh, mold in silage. And they produce some, some pretty toxic mycotoxins. Now, is that throughout the silage lawn or is that just in that crust along the top? No, it's deep down. Now, you get penicillium going deep down in the, in the silage because, again, it doesn't require a lot of oxygen to be produced. And uh, you'll, as you, as you uh, go through that silo, you may uh, hit some uh, spots or layers uh, where you see a kind of a bluish uh, penicillium-like growth. Mm-hmm. So, so are those toxins we typically test for, those penicilliums? Uh, not not uh, r- routinely. And I think we don't test for them because uh, they don't occur as commonly in grain. And the ones that do occur in grain are, are not considered to be as severe. Uh, so a lot of the testing has been ba- basically dictated by grain issues and by human uh, issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the analytical method discovery is is driven by the commercial need. Um, so you know you see a lot more um, robust and 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 varied methodology for analysis for grain based issues than you would see for silage. Though even though silage is a large portion of the of the food chain in the dairy industry, it's not a large percentage of the samples most labs receive in a general basis. So there's a little less interest. Uh, to be honest, um, there isn't even an AOAC validated method for mycotoxin analysis in silage. Um, there is people that have done validate, valid, self-validated methods in their, in, their, in their labs. You know, some of the, the labs that specialize have actually gone and do that. Uh, but there isn't even at that extent a, a validated method for that. So we're a little behind the curve on that, but it's mostly driven by by the commercial need and by the, you know, the financial uh, contribution in that aspect. And, and that, again, is a, is a reason why I recommend to uh, dairy producers when they're analyzing for silage to actually determine the type of mold that's present in the silage. And this will give you some indication if uh, the mycotoxins produced by that mold could be present. Hmm. That is uh, then... Uh, you know, uh, uh, related to the symptoms you see in the cow may, may give you a little better idea on how to move forward. So is it possible to have mold and yet not have mycotoxins? Um, yeah, Certainly. It's quite Absolutely. common. Yeah. Oh. There's uh, probably uh, more than half of the molds that do not produce any toxins. It's like mushrooms. You know, some of them are fine. They don't produce any toxin. Others are toxigenic, meaning they produce toxins, and they produce an array of toxins. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we talked about that a little bit. It's the, the, their, their function as a decomposition of organic matter. They play a vital role, and as soon as you, you harvest that plant, they're part of that uh, ecology. So um, there's, there's all sorts of them. Um, some of them will be, will be beneficial. Others will be damaging. I mean, again, even if you look at the human microbiota, you know, there's, there's some populations there that are, that are beneficial. On the flip side of that, can, can you look at a feed sample and uh, visibly tell if there will be mycotoxin issues? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, no. I, think, I think, you know, long gone are the days where you can blue light corn and speculate that it had and and you know that's been disproven even at, at that at that level 
Um, I, I think I think any good risk assessment model is a combination of things. I think in a perfect world, you'd be always testing. But I think in a general consensus, if, if you if you have a, a quick decision to be made and you have a certain amount of money that you're expending on maybe uh, improving that situation, then you have to make decisions based on that. And sometimes, you know, taking a leap of faith and saying that fee does not look good, right? And I have the options of not continually feeding it or maybe not, I don't have that option, then let's start doing other things that, that might be proactive as, a, as, as much as, as reactive in that context. So um, I think a lot of people um, visually inspect feeds and make decisions. It, I mean, it happens almost every day. Um, I can tell you, I, the vast majority of phone calls I get are on the opposite spectrum. I sent a moldy feed to a lab. It came back with nothing. And that's the most shocking phone call that I get on a consistent basis. And I said, look, if the moles were growing there, they're happy. They're unlikely producing mycotoxins when they get stressed that they probably produced them or they were produced in the field um, prior to, to harvest. So it's a, it's a really bad tool uh, for, for diagnostic in the purest sense but in but in essence you do know that if that moldy is if that feed is moldy there's probably something happened to it right it's not what you wanted to feed so it it, it drives the decisions still in the right direction i would say yeah i, I would say it, it's a good thing to look at and, and even though you test a moldy feed and it comes back with nothing you have to remember there are hundreds of mycotoxins and you didn't test for all of them so if you do have problems uh in in the animals and you look at the feed and it's moldy then i would certainly test it uh, it's an indication that it could be the issue yeah, so I, what I, those two types of people with with mold like those that will see their bread and see a patch of mold and just cut around it and still eat it those that would see some mold in that bread and throw out the entire bread right yeah, and that's, that's me you know yeah that's that's perspective i mean if you really look at how far that mold has penetrated it's probably better off to throw the entire bread but in my household my, my mom would have never thrown the whole bread away penicillin's good for you yeah hopefully it's, it's, it's not uh harmful uh, molds in there <laughs> yeah. um you know so where in the process are we getting most of the mycotoxins is it is that happening in the field you mentioned before uh, uh dorte it could have happened in the field or does that happen during the harvest, storage, I, yeah, I think feeding? That's, that's changing. Um, I, I think one of the things that, that we have to really be cognizant of is, is as, 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 as this climate evolution of the last 10, 15 years occurs, it actually has changed some of the environmental conditions in some areas where there's there's significant amount of, of production of commodities that are used for livestock uh, feed production. Mm. I think there's, it was like a month ago, there was a paper published out of uh, environmental research letters from Felicia Wu. She used to be at Pittsburgh. I don't know if you remember Dr. Willow. She's now at Michigan State University. And she's basically, she modeled uh, these 20 different or 16 different scenarios of climate change. And she's actually predicting that the Midwest will have aflatoxin issues. And I think the time period they use is 2030 to 2041, right? An 11 period of in the future because the temperatures will creep on uh, and, and creeping up and that would allow more favorable environment for, for aspergillus 
um, flavors. But when I started with, with Dr. Winlow, we used to classify mycotoxins as feed toxins and field toxins, or I mean, storage toxins and field toxins. And, you know, one of the things that was really interesting when I got to Arizona is that about 90% of our uh, aflatoxin contamination occurs in the field. With very little that's occurring post that. Uh, and it's because it's so hot in here that they're creating those micro abrasions in the in the kernel and it's allowing the the aspergillus to to propagate and, and penetrate in that seed but you know we, we we've taken molds that we historically considered mostly a, a storage problems and and now they're they're being found in in very commonly in 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 field contaminations and i think you know i think that's that's a credit to the capacity of the molds to adapt and evolve and and, and adjust uh um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it has been changing. Um, I think, again, when I run risk assessment, I run risk assessment based on two primary criteria. First, if a feedstuff is occurring in a high percentage in that diet, you know, the case of what Dr. Willow mentioned about corn silage for dairy or let's say corn in general for monogastric diets. Uh, and then I look at other ingredients and I rank them based on risk, right? Is this a, is this a material that historically uh, has been contaminated or has been more frequently contaminated, and I classify them based based on that strata. Uh, but but you have to be on your toes because uh, it it changes a lot faster than you think it would. Now, aside from mycotoxins, um, are there any other um, problems that molds cause in feeds? Well, well molds, when they when they grow and feed, they're going to utilize some of the nutrients that are present. So the feed is going to have less nutritional value uh, than the original feed. And um, in some cases, like uh, with proteins, the moles may use uh, individ some individual amino acids more than others. So it will change the amino acid profile. But uh, yeah, I'd say basically uh, just lower nutritional value of the feed itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah, in, in grains and also they've looked at energy concentrations has also had, you know, some significant changes in, in fat content, for example. Uh, so depending on what kind of mold you have, what priority they have as a substrate. Uh, the other side of that could be first um, that they may, they may offer an off flavor um, that we don't know about. Right. Um, it's kind of interesting in, in some of the work that I did at NC state, um, we had the control cows trying to get on top of the uh, the feed to get the the toxin contaminated uh, fever. Apparently, that one was tastier. And it, again, we we have plenty of foods that we can use as example that 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 moldy stuff is is I mean it's tastier, right? I mean, blue cheese uh, is is a perfect example of that. Although I I don't like blue cheese. <laughs> That's outside of the, uh, the scope, right? Uh, but I think the other side is that uh, most can also be potentially, you know, uh, damaging too, like, uh, uh, um, you know, aspergillosis or several other types of, of mold-inflicted uh, diseases that are respiratory uh, in nature. And again, in a system where maybe you are in a fine, very critical line between, you know, proper uh, respiratory health, um, you know, introducing a moldy feed into that, um, you know, a pig unit or or different uh, facilities can, can be uh, very problematic because that mold could actually uh, get into the lungs of the animals and cause a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. 
So we all have heard of, you know, kind of the standards, the, the aflatoxin, the Don, the Zeralinone, and and Lon, I think when you and I were traveling around California a few years back, we were talking about gliotoxin at that time, which I think was relatively new. I'm just kind of curious if there's any new and emerging toxins that we're, we're, we're finding out about that we're just learning about. Um, I would say that um, there's always new emerging toxins. If, if you, I mean, um, I don't, I don't go to the mycotoxin meetings with regularity because of two primary reasons. First of all, because half of that meetings are usually focused on analytical methods and I'm not that greatly concerned about analytical methods. I think we do a perfectly good job. I wish we spent half of that time developing sampling protocols to reduce the mm -hmm. sampling error as opposed to getting better analytical methods. But the other half of that, those meetings are uh, in these discoveries of these new uh, compounds. And, um, you know, time has told us that, you know, since we discovered fumonacin, you know, there's there, there's been a lot of other mycotoxins that have been discovered, but none of them have really made it um, to levels of concern uh, outside of specific uh, substrates or nutrients. Um, you know, there there is a good, you know, five or six uh, new toxins that come in every every five or six years. And, you know, some of them we, we do analyze and, and we pay attention. Uh, but if, if you actually look at the overall literature of toxicologically uh, based uh, research, we're still doing 95% of the research on aflatoxin, DONT2 toxins, serotonin and fumonacin. So mm -hmm. that tells you a little bit. I think you, you, you definitely don't want to take your foot off the pedal, right? I mean, that's how fumonacin came about, right? I mean, we, it wasn't in the list, and it and it and it, be, and it was an emerging toxin that actually ended up having a lot of issues, not only in the animal side but also in the human um, human health side. So it became the the newest uh, emerging toxins. But I, I I mean I get questions all the time, and I try to tell them I'm having a hard time with the fives that I focus on, uh, <laughs> yet alone uh, all, all the ones that get discovered. I usually start getting exciting when, excited when I start seeing some um, survey uh, papers that are saying it occurs at more high frequency. Um, we obviously have our list of five or six ones that we wish everybody else was talking about. And and again, Dr. Willow mentioned a good chunk of those are those that are associated with um, with um, you know silage. I I think we don't do enough on ochratoxin personally. I think it's a, a pretty uh, uh, important mycotoxin. And then some of those uh, penicillin uh, mycotoxins that, that are probably pretty frequently out there that, that, that we, we don't do enough with. There's another aspect of that, and that is that uh, research has shown that when you uh, have one mycotoxin in a feed, you probably have about 25 different mycotoxins if you were to analyze for, for many. And they do interact, they do um, synergize with each other and, and contribute to increased toxicity, but we don't really understand all of that. We don't, we're not, we're not really able to, to offer up exactly how that uh, occurs and how severe it is. But we do know that some of these uh, more obscure or minor mycotoxins do contribute to the overall toxicity. Yeah, and experimentally, what you see is that they'll put that in a really uh, in a in a study to try to demonstrate the toxicity, and ends up being a pretty high concentration. And again, I think the complexity we went through that even through my master's and PhD work, right, where we want to 
we want to look at a diet that's similar to what the animals are consuming. But if you have four toxins in there, can you actually characterize what the toxicity is of, of, of the individual components of that? So it creates a very, it creates a complex experimental model when, when what you're actually trying to mimic is, is what's, what's at, what's happening in, 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 in nature, right at the farm. Mm-hmm. So let's so, say you had, sorry, Clay, go ahead. Duarte, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, you know, about issues with sampling for mycotoxins. And, and you, you talked about that some during the real science lecture mm-hmm. as well. How should these samples be handled when they're submitted to a lab? Um, collected or handled? Handled. Or both. Okay. Ship during shipment. Um, it's. I mean, it kind of depends. If you if you're actually just going for mycotoxins, you want to refrigerate them and try to stabilize them. Um, if you want to get mold spores and you know mold counts, then you have to be a little bit more careful about how severe you know the the environmental control is. But um, definitely not in the in the dash of the truck for six hours before you send it to UPS. Um, I think, yeah, you want to try to stabilize it as much as you can. I, I think, I think, Clay, I, I have more problems with how bad the samples are collected than how they are handled uh, uh-huh. for, the, for the most part, because even if you have protocols, people just don't want to spend the time to collect the right sample. And I mean, it's, it's basic human nature, but, you know, mycotoxin analysis are not cheap. I mean, they're, they've actually gotten more expensive than they were before. I mean, it's it's more expensive now to analyze for mycotoxins than it was probably 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and, and if you're not going to collect the right sample, it, it, it just, I mean, that's, that's really, you know, it's something that I, I struggle with. I mean, I go to a lot of meetings and I hear people arguing about HPLC is not good enough. We need to GC, mass spec, do this. And I'm like, if you're collecting a that's I was gonna say a bad word. So if you're collecting a bad sample, what does it matter if you got a five hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment behind your analytical capability? I'd rather you do ELISA and take twenty samples or take one good sample than to do you know one bad sample with a GC mass bag. So um, I, I, yeah, I mean I think yeah that's I, I tell people all the time go to a specialized lab, ask them how to collect the sample, and ask them how to ship the sample. And if it's a set, if it's a lab that knows how to do mycotoxin analysis, they will have a document they will send to you that says, collect sample like this, try to get as many places in that, mix it, do this, and then stabilize the sample before shipment. I mean, you could also dry the sample, you know, if you want to truly stabilize it, right? Yeah. yeah. So what's a good mycotoxin? Uh, toxin testing program look like? Should should all uh, farms be testing for mycotoxins? Should they be testing all feedstuffs? Uh, should they be testing throughout the year? What, what does it look like? What's your recommendations? I, I try to recommend uh, building a risk assessment model before you get to that point uh, because it's, it's going to be very different in Florida than it's going to be in Arizona. It's going to be in Wisconsin or in California. So based on on a general risk assessment model, you're going to take into account um, the commodities that you have and where they're coming from. And then you're also going to take into consideration what Dr. Whitlow talked about is how how much of your total diet does that ingredient contribute? Uh, And then a combination of that, of those data points will allow you to say, um, you know, let's take a sample every time we open a silo and every time we're 
three months into it and at the end, right? At the critical points or whatever, whatever those are decided in the system. And the same for a large batch of corn coming. That's a good time to actually get a broad uh, sample and see what, what's being brought into the system. Um, again, in Arizona, we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about cotton seed. Um, I mean, I, 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 I get in trouble all the time, but I, I, I don't like seeing cottonseed in, in Arizona dairy operations because it's, it's you know, incredibly risky uh, to, to get a tank load of, of milk getting rejected for a commodity that, yeah, it's a great feed stuff, but it, you, you don't have to have it, right? So um, I, I, base, I base those on those, uh, on those uh, points. I have never been a really huge fan of TMR testing. Because it it gets it puts me in the position where I still have to figure out which one of the ingredients is Where'd the one that's contaminated. Yeah. Uh, but I also understand the value, right? If you're doing a, a protocol based on, you know, every time we have major changes, is that maybe you can do a TMR and then go back to the to the traditional uh, individual ingredients. But that's usually how I I try to address it uh, on a on a regional or individual basis. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with Duarte about the risk assessment. I think for 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 most uh, producers, they evaluate the animals, their records. They look to see if um, production has changed. Um, has there been any change in uh, health condition of the animals? Any spike in any any change at all that's uh, detrimental there? Also, just uh, evaluating uh, feeds by visual observation and uh, looking looking look at it for the quality i mean it doesn't tell you if the mycotoxin is prevalent or not but it gives you some indication if that could be a, a part of the problem so evaluating the herd first that risk assessment is probably the first way to go uh, I, I don't i don't normally recommend that every producer analyze on any kind of a routine basis but rather evaluate their own situation and then develop a, a plan from there. Mm. I think Duarte is absolutely correct. Yep. Makes sense. So let's say you've tested some uh, forages or grain, you've got a mycotoxin problem. Now what? Um, do you feed that, uh, that feed stuffs? Do you discard it? Is dilution the solution? Um, where do we go from here? Well, there's a number of steps, and I'll probably leave some of them out. I won't remember everything, but um, it depends on the level of toxin that you've got in the feed. Certainly, we want to keep any kind of contaminated feed away from the dry cows. Uh, and and uh, if you're feeding uh, calves, calves are going to be more susceptible. Dry cows will be more susceptible. Um so you may be able to uh, shift the feed around if you're grouping cows, shift it around uh, uh, so that the uh, animals that are most susceptible receive the cleanest feed. Um, and I tell dairymen that because very few people are going to throw feed away, right? They're going to try to use it some way, somehow. So that's the first thing. And then dilution is, is the next thing to look at. You've got to be a little bit careful about dilution because uh, once you dilute the feed, uh, the mold can continue to grow and produce mycotoxins. So you may end up back where you started. Um, you can look at, you need to look at management of your 
feedstuffs. For example, do you take silage out of the silo and stack it somewhere for two or three days before you feed the cows? You, you, you know, uh, you could be getting a mycotoxin growth or production uh, in that uh, in that pile. Uh, look at things like treating the silo face with some uh, uh, organic acids to reduce mold growth, at least on that uh, feeding surface. And then those organic acids will go into the TMR when you feed it and help keep the TMR stable. Um, and of course, uh, if, if you find it uh, in grains, uh, then you, you might uh, then go to your supplier and talk about replacing a, co a contaminated feed because uh, it's really illegal to be selling a, a moldy contaminated feed. Mm -hmm. So you might get uh, that feed replaced. And then certainly that would help uh, on future deliveries uh, to keep, keep your feeds clean. Uh, I probably missed some things, but Duarte will fill in. And I'll, I'll add up a couple of ones. You know. <laughs> uh, the first one being that um, dilution can also be tricky in the context of, of aflatoxin because, uh, you know, there's there's some very specific guidelines that, that don't allow you to dilute um, um, the feed once, you know, it's over the legal allowed limit. So um, that has to be done within the context of understanding what, what the law and what the requirement mm -hmm. is for the other mycotoxins. Um, it's a perfectly sound idea but you also have to think about for example if you if you get a toxin like zeralanone where zeralanone can be more problematic depending on the period of the reproductive cycle of the animal if you dilute zeralanone now you're going to have potentially more time points where animals are going to be at the right part of that reproductive cycle to have issues so you know we, we i wish it would be super straightforward but you have to consider that yeah, depending on the toxin um, what what uh, what kind of strategy? I uh, also remember one that the Dr. Whitlow told me very early on that it didn't make sense initially, but uh, as he explained it, it made a perfect sense. Which is, you know, you may actually have to feed more of that silage. Um, sometimes um, we are not moving enough of the silage phase in that silage, and then all that exposure to oxygen is actually what's triggering a lot. So if you actually went and bumped up silage intake into that diet. Uh, or amount to that diet, then you're now actually going to the recommended guidelines of moving the silage phase and, and while uh, minimizing the amount of oxygen exposure uh, and growth. And then at the end of that exercise is where we start looking at, can we feed the animals um, you know, additives or in the, uh, uh, products that may have beneficial impacts on that animal health? Like obviously anything that could potentially damage intestinal, um, you know, integrity, you know, you could, it could be very well uh, remediated by products that have intestinal health as a, as a mode of action, or obviously the traditional binders that we've studied um, over the years where the objective is to find a compound that attracts to and binds to the toxin and reduces the, the absorption throughout the GI tract. But there's, there's other things, you know, for example, I've used, antioxidants um, pretty regularly on um, poor quality silages, because I think apart from the mycotoxins and those poor quality silages, you also have, you know, free radicals that are being formed from the oxidation of the fats in, in, that, in that material. Um, and also could happen in, in many of the other ingredients that we have, high energy ingredients that we have. So 
Um, that's where you start thinking about strategically what can I include into this diet to maybe help these animals uh, cope or or you know pass through this 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 um, period. Um, again, pro all of those are proactive. Um, at the same time, I think you actually have to be looking at what is the cost um, so that you can potentially prevent it from happening in the future, right? So if the, if the cost was a corn grain that came from Farm X, then you need to have that conversation because next year you don't want to do that. Or if it's corn silage that came from your own facility, you may want to look at, you know, that you harvest at the right time, at the right moisture, did you compact correctly, uh, I use a good inoculant, um, all those things. So you, you want to do your action uh, activity. At the same time, you want to reserve some time to make sure that, that you correct the errors that led to, to that problem uh, moving forward. Now, if you're a nutritionist and you're looking at how do I change my ration formulations because I have mycotoxins, then as Duarte says, adding some of these uh, products that uh, uh, help uh, prevent toxicity is certainly important. The other thing is we talked uh, earlier that uh, mold growth itself reduces the nutritional value of the feed. So we may want to increase the nutrient levels to uh, somewhat. We know that some mycotoxins uh, reduce protein synthesis, and uh, it's been shown that uh, DON, for example, is associated with less microbial protein production in the rumen. So we may want to increase the protein level in the diet for that reason. Um, then antioxidant nutrients can be very important. Um, Things like uh, selenium, vitamin E, uh, zinc, manganese, these are all antioxidant nutrients. Uh, and then um, uh, there are uh, other commercial uh, provided nut uh, antioxidant nutrients that can be used. Um, so those are a few things. I, I think uh, I'd like to emphasize that we need to try to maintain a robust rumen fermentation because the dairy cow for, uh, is going to destroy a lot of mycotoxins in the rumen. Now, if we cause acidosis and shut down the rumen, then we're going to have a lot more toxicity. So uh, we want to maintain a good rumen fermentation. That may mean adding uh, buffers to the diet, uh, certainly maintaining good uh, fiber levels but uh, uh, definitely not pushing their cows too hard to try to increase milk production. Uh, we've seen this before. I've seen it a lot of times is that in that uh, a dairy farm sees a loss in milk production. And so they think, well, my, my diet, my rations, just not hot enough. I need more energy in that diet. So they push more energy. And before long, they're causing acidosis. And if this is a mycotoxin problem, then their problem just gets worse and worse. Founding you. Yeah. So, Lon, you mentioned, you mentioned a few minutes ago about keeping uh, contaminated feed away from the dry cows. Yeah. So I think I've asked you this question in the past, but uh, I was asked this question again last week. So I get this question a few times every year where a herd will run into an issue where either the uh, the heifers that are calving in for the first time or mature cows, they're not producing colostrum. There's a lack of colostrogenesis in these cows. Is there any relationship between mycotoxicosis and the lack of colostrum production? 
I'm not aware of any data that's really clear on that, but there is some uh, data and it's not, uh, most of it's not in cattle <laughs> that would suggest that it is possible to reduce uh, colostrum levels in, in milk with uh, uh, mycotoxins. Um, I don't know if that, you know, I have no idea if that would be a, a major issue a major association with mycotoxins or not. But what we do know is that mycotoxins, one of the biggest effects of mycotoxins is reducing immunity, suppressing the immune system in the animal. And this is why I think that it's very uh, important with dry cows is that they're already going to be immune suppressed when they freshen. And if you add the mycotoxins on top of that, then they just don't have any chance of, of getting started uh, when they freshen. So uh, you've got to keep uh, clean feed in front of the dry cows and then also the calves because the calves don't have that functional rumen which allows them to destroy mycotoxins. So some of these toxins we talk about, the cows just, you know, don't bother cows too much are, are really important for calves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would add, Clay, that if you if you look at the overall data, again, this is not ruminant data, but the monogastric data, there, there's a ton of data that, that shows uh, reduction in immunoglobulins uh, in mycotoxin-exposed um, animals, right? I mean, in, in general, CERNs is, is one of the go-to uh, experimental uh, observations, right, in, in a lot of these, these uh, studies. So it, it would make sense that if, you know, circulatory levels of immunoglobulins were were low, it would affect the, you know, the quantity in the in that uh, colostrum offering. So that's that's um, fairly fairly well documented in that, um, as you guys know, ruminant research has the challenge of use, having to need a lot of mycotoxin contaminated feed to be able to feed a handful of cows, <laughs> and then having right. to explain the statistical geniuses of our societies that you know it's not I I, I didn't have fifty cows, I just couldn't afford them. Um, so, uh, it, 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 you know, we, we extrapolate a lot of that from, from the, um, from the monogastric, uh, uh, research, uh, uh, arena. The other thing I would say though, Clay, is that, you know, right now when we, we having all these conversations about epigenetics and again, I'm, I'm involved in that because of the, uh, the heat stress work that we do here, but I find those complementary. you know, the same thing is if you're, you're exposing that cow, at a very critical time period, uh, you know, to to some contaminated feed that is making her make adjustments to be able to to function normally, that's going to potentially have an impact on not only her but the 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 quality and the 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 productivity of that of that offspring. Um, and that's one of the things we would like to do here is we would like to put together this this heat stress low mycotoxin heat stress combination model to see that. That you know you don't you don't always need to have 120 degree temperatures or you don't don't always need 7,000 parts per billion of the specific mycotoxin. It's those life happens every day, right? And it's it, and those those things combine very well to to cause challenges in the system. I want to circle back to something both of you guys mentioned earlier, and that's feed additives and typically. 
uh, producers, nutritionists, one of the first things they're going to reach for if they've got a mycotoxin problem is a mycotoxin binder. If we could have a, kind of a brief discussion around the, the types of mycotoxin binders, and we'll not use trade names, but you know, we've got your clays, you've got your yeast cell walls, uh, there's, there's mycotoxins that are um, products that denature them. Uh, I don't know if it's in vivo or in situ, I don't know where it happens, but may, maybe just kind of an overview of the, the different classes of mycotoxin binders, uh, mode of action, uh, positives and negatives. And I know that's, that's a big question, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really large category. I think if you, if you look at um, the market and the size of the market, um, the first of all is you have to really understand that they are, um, additives that you are feeding for different reasons that may be beneficial during a mycotoxicosis. Like we spoke before, you know, supplementing with an antioxidant, increasing vitamin E, um, these things could actually also be beneficial in a mycotoxicosis. And they're not necessarily being sold or being utilized specifically as a mycotoxin solution. I think the term binder is a little bit of a disservice on the complexity of the, of the discipline. I think Dr. Wheeler and I try to uh, coin the sequestering agent uh, because it didn't have a definition in the dictionary and nobody could claim that we didn't bind per se because you're not always binding sometimes there's attractions or or fitting into a pore or or getting you know just reducing the exposure to the to the gastrointestinal um, um, track right so I think the, the categories can be really broad and once you start removing those that are um, compounds that offer benefit independent, of exposure to mycotoxins, and then you have this category that is um, mycotoxin solutions, right? Where there you could have the category that is um, more compounds that are designed to reduce the absorption through the GI tract through some type of interaction, whether that's binding, whether that's pore size, you can even think about potentially feeding an antibody coated uh, that would just destroy the capacity of it passing through the through the gastrointestinal tract. Then you start getting into categories of, of products that are different mode of actions, maybe compounds or enzymes uh, that are breaking down the molecule or changing the molecule structure and then uh, potentially decreasing the toxicity uh, of that compound. Those can be kind of tricky because you have to demonstrate that the compound that you changed it to is first less toxic, but also not going to reconvert back into, into the toxic compound. I think in most cases, the, the compound that we talked about, right, the aflatoxin, the xeralinone, the T2 toxin, is really not the toxic compound. It's usually converted in the liver into some you know, epoxide that is actually what's, what's truly the active. So, so we have to explore those. But the categories are broad, right? We have a lot of products that are either trying to interfere with absorption or trying to disrupt absorption through changing on the molecules. But what you end up seeing in the market is a lot of products that try to do uh, several things at the same time. And I think although that is um, a really good strategy because you have different mycotoxins and, and the capacity to potentially, let's say, absorb some of those are, are going to be more difficult depending on the structure what happens is that we, we need to really understand what the minimum effective dose is of each individual compound before you make a mix of them. Uh, if I make myself clear, I'm, I'm saying that if you take if you take three known products that work, but you know they work at one gram, 
and you feed all three of them at half a gram, you now made a super product that doesn't work, right? Because you fail to meet the minimum effective dose of the individual components, right? And they're not complementing each other to 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 become better. So I think that's where we are right now in the in the in the landscape. We have a lot of companies that are doing some innovative things, or they're trying to do some some mixtures of, of combinations. But I, I still think we we need a little bit more work on titrating out doses, being better uh, cognizant of, of what it needs. I, I think what I always try to tell people is, you know, if you think about parts per billion or parts per million, right, it's a very, very small amount. You have to be able to put something in that diet that has an effect on that very small amount. Less of, of something is always not necessarily a good, right? I mean, you may need a little bit of a higher concentration of those. But I think that's where the current um, market is. I think there is some really innovative things uh, that are coming out with, for example, enzymes that may potentially destruct or change that molecule. Again, they still need to prove that it's all happening at the GI tract because the other challenge is that a lot of the toxins are absorbed passively through the GI tract and it occurs quite quickly. So if your enzymatic reaction requires a pH of three, by the time you get to a point where you have a pH of three, you probably already absorbed a considerable amount of, of that. Th- those are the kind of things that, that I think uh, are evolving in, in the discipline. But the binders have been really good. I mean, the binders have done a fairly good t- uh, amount of, of work for a very long time, and they're still very, very much use around the world. Probably the, the primary uh, mode of action uh, uh, worldwide is is the traditional uh, binding um, uh, type of products. Well, Duarte did, did a good job of summarizing all of that. Uh, and what I might add is that uh, in Europe, they have a process for approval of products. In the U.S., we have no uh, system for approval of these products. And I think uh, we need to move in that direction. One of the problems, one of the problems we have with approval is that uh, aflatoxin being a carcinogen um, can't be allowed in feed, right? We do have action levels, which is different from a um, allowable level, let's say. And uh, if you use a product against aflatoxin, um, you would have to show that it's completely eliminated or you still have a carcinogen in the feed. So this becomes a a difficult issue, but we need to work in the direction of trying to get a FDA-approved process uh, for approval of these products. I, I went to a meeting once where, where Dr. Winlow asked uh, a USDA person what it would take, and I, I kid you not, the person said, "Not until, I, not until I'm dead." Now, I would, I would, I would say he, he is probably. I shouldn't say that. I, I mean, he was, he was fairly old at that time, so I, I think it's probably a good time to maybe potentially start putting a little bit of pressure into the system, Brazil has regulatory limits, uh, and they actually have a category also. The union, European Union has one. Um, I think if they actually look back and, and what their intention was, right, the intention of not creating a category was to not permit people to sell products that were contaminated because there was a solution for it. 
But if they look back, what they actually did was nobody followed the rules, right? The, the, there was no option. So the option was to continue feeding these these materials that were contaminated. I in this paper that I was quoting, they they actually said in the thing that, you know, the when material is over the legal allowed limit, you know, in the United States, people destroy them. I spent a lot of time traveling. You guys spent a lot of time traveling. I speak with a lot of producers, a lot of millers. I don't see a lot of material being destroyed anywhere. Mm-hmm. And we know from incidents data that there's much more uh, contamination than, than destruction. So I think it's time to go back and maybe explain to them that, yeah, I mean, it was a novel idea, but it had it didn't have the right effect. The effect, it didn't reduce people from feeding aflatoxin contaminated dye. It, it, it just created a you know, black hole, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and the same for the for the products. If the products don't have a category to exist, then I can I can sell you anything, right? And and call it something else as long as I'm not violating the rules. Flow of, agent. Yeah, of, of what it needs to be called that. I, <laughs> I can do that. And the number of products that have changed their name just because the USDA said, well, you can't call it that. In the end, those products are still in the market, right? They didn't really change that so again I, I, I let me reiterate i'm not wishing anybody to be dead i'm just saying those people are probably no longer in the usda based on the cycle of employment so it may be a good time i think it will it will require um a push from the from the private sector uh and mm-hmm. and uh institution like afia you know to to actually you know rebring this this conversation um i was talking to some people recently uh um i recommended that they updated the cast book remember when that was published dr willow remember no. the cast handbook? <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I don't remember the date <laughs> but it's it's been i'm not it's sure been, last week <laughs> yeah no it's, it's been it's been a very very long time since that book was published and it and it was a pretty important you know reference it took it's i mean it was it's a you know, USDA-led yeah. effort, right? So I think that would be, uh, this is probably as good time to to revisit this conversation about generating categories for products that are, that are, um, and, and I think that would, that would be a great service for the producers because uh, then they, they need to stop being research facilities, right? The producer needs to have a product that's been tested and it, and it works, right? They're not in the business of doing research. So um, I, hopefully, uh, that happened. Um, I, I will tell you another side of that. Uh, tell Dr. Winlow because I probably haven't told him that. I still haven't managed to train one single student that has stayed on the mycotoxin field. So um, I don't know if that is a, a credit to yours and my stubbornness, uh, but most of them realize that it's tough out there for for it and, and end up working in, in other areas. So that's another problem that we need to solve. You know, we used to be uh, the U.S. used to be the leading uh, research uh, institutions in, in mycotoxin research. Right now, about 60 to 70 percent, I just checked, of the research being published on mycotoxin is coming uh, out of China, South America, and, and Europe. We we are definitely not on the leading front anymore on that. Yeah, the, the, there's a real problem with uh, research in, uh, in all mycotoxins, especially in ruminants. Um, there's there for a uh, researcher in, in the university system there is no money and they have to have money and they have to produce research and publications uh, so 
they're not going to work in the mycotoxin area and especially in ruminants. And so we need to look at uh, if this is a if this is a real issue for people, we need to look at uh, ways to increase the funding to get the research done. It's real frustrating to get these questions about mycotoxins that we've been looking at this for. Well, as as, as Duarte said, we really started in the early 60s. So we've been going on 60 years and we're not uh, conducting enough research to answer the questions that people in the field really have. Yeah, I, I have a couple of colleagues that have attempted to do one mycotoxin study and then call me back and said, oh, don't send me anybody else. I'll never do that again. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're, they're not only expensive. I mean, they're, they're not expensive in the context of other research in, in ruminants, but, but they're tricky, right? I mean, you have, to, you have to handle materials with a certain level of scrutiny. You, you know, there, there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. Um, you know, we, we used to have a pretty reliable source of culture material and, you know, um, that might not be available in, in the near future. And, you know, it's not like, you know, I, I would love to take those those cultures and grow them myself and continue that work. But um, the scrutiny the university would put on me if I was actually culturing, you know, compounds that are on the list of biological weapons and I fit at least 55 of their profiles. So, um, I, you know, it, it wouldn't be really easy for me to do that. So, uh, I, I think it, it gets challenging. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's, it's only gotten more challenging. Um, we try to do five experiments. We put together this whole protocol on T2 toxin. There's a ton of, of missing information on T2 toxin and, and we got letters from the Department of Defense that said that we only certain people had authority to buy more than a certain amount of T2 toxin, um, and, and we weren't one of them. So we we moved to we moved to Zeralinone. Um So um, it is it is challenging. Um, I I do still think that there is a need, uh, and I, I I would like to see more people uh, in academia get involved in in this area of research. I think. You know, we, we get some people that are curious, but at this point in the ruminant side, the only people who are working on that went at some point through Dr. Whitlow's lab, you know. So, um, you know, when I was a student, Georgia was a big group. Um, well, Minnesota had a group. University of Guelph had a group. Um, but, you know, the, Texas A&M had their, their group out there. Um, and, you know, Missouri um, right now, a lot of those guys are retired, and there there hasn't been a there hasn't been a new batch of people interested in doing it. I mean, and I, I don't blame them for the same reason Dr. Whitlow said. Um, there's not a lot of FD, uh, USDA grants out there for for microplastics. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys noticed, but uh, Clay finished his Angry Orchard uh, a few minutes ago, which is my signal. So since it is last call, I'd like to have you guys. Um, Sum it up by just giving us an idea of whether you're a producer or a nutritionist. What are some things that you can do to reduce mycotoxins on the dairy farm? Tonight's PubCast toast is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. Maximize room and microflora with the consistent release of NitroSure to turn up the dial on rumen efficiency and productivity. Visit balchem.com to learn more. And uh, Clay, let's start with you. Well, I want to start off first by saying that this has been a real pleasure for me. Uh, it's 
we don't I don't get a chance to interact a lot with some fellow NC State Wolfpackers. <laughs> so uh it's been a treat for me. Um Dr. Whitlow and I go go way back. He was he was uh, he served on both my master's and my PhD committee. And uh, Lon, I I have a story I want to tell about you. <laughs> so back in the uh when did you start on faculty at NC State? 1979? That's right. So Dr. Whitlow is the the hotshot new uh dairy nutrition extension specialist in North Carolina. So he's introduced by his um by the the chair of the uh of the dairy extension department at a large meeting. He said, "I'd like to welcome our new dairy nutrition extension specialist, Dr. Ron Winslow." <laughs> oh, that's a way to start. <laughs> that's right, right. So no, I've re I've really enjoyed this this discussion this evening. So um, so yeah, lots of lots of key takeaways here, but uh, but you know, obviously a lot of challenges here too, as uh, as have been d discussed here that uh, the. Uh, the occurrence of mycotoxicosis, you know, it seems to be increasing, you know, some of that related related to uh, the changes in climate as uh, as Duarte um, discussed both both in the real science lecture and and this afternoon. And uh, so so the issue is not going away. And I, I actually really enjoyed the discussion at the end about um, about about the need to um, for USDA to you know to, to take a look at at uh, you know trying trying to um, legitimize some solutions here for the industry. All right, uh, Lon. Uh, for for a dairy farmer, I think they need to really uh, <clears throat> emphasize uh, cropping management. They need to start by looking at uh, getting crops planted at the right time and harvested uh, as early as possible to, you know, to fit fit in their area to fit the best uh, uh, season for growing that crop so that it's not stressed. Uh, also, cr rotating crops. We know that uh, having uh, continuous corn is going to create more problems uh, with with mold. Even corn following small grain is, is a problem because it's the same mold in small grain and corn. So we need, need to rotate with uh, some legumes if possible. And then uh, um, once you harvest that crop, uh, follow the best management practices for silage making, uh, mainly to get it uh, put in the silo quickly at the right uh, moisture content and uh, get it packed well so you eliminate oxygen. And, uh, and then uh, when you uh, are feeding that silage, uh, that needs to uh, be fed well so that you uh, feed the foot a day off of the silo surface and, and um, try to avoid, uh, again, oxygen infiltration into the silage mass. And then, uh, 
the the next thing would be to look at the herd and the feeds themselves to try to evaluate whether or not a, a mole could be a problem and if it is to do some testing and uh, then follow some of the uh, best practices on uh, trying to eliminate that mold or uh, add uh, products to the diet to eliminate the toxicity as best as possible. Thank you, Dr. Whitlow. Torte, give you the final word. Okay, well, I am actually going to say a couple of stories too. You know, I'll tell you when I uh, was a senior undergraduate student at Jacksonville University, I came, I came up to North Carolina to visit with, with potential faculty and I met a lot of people at that time, and it and it was the it was the amino acid era, so everybody was working on amino acids. And I think at the end of the day, my last meeting was with Dr. Willow and Dr. Hopkins because they both had very high extension appointments. They they shared graduate students, and we got into the room, and Dr. Hopkins started to talk about amino acid nutrition. And I think Dr. Willow saw my eyes kind of you know glaze or something because he he quickly interrupted and then and started talking about this project that he had thought about working with, with clays. And um, um, for, for those that don't know, I, I don't have an ag background. I didn't grow up in a farm. I didn't know hardly anything about farming until I came to NC State. But I had been curious about the, the macaws and the parrots in the Amazon and how they would eat clay to detoxify you know, bad seed quality. And, and that was the link that, that, that started when Dr. Willow started talking about that. I didn't know what you know, a dairy feed stuff looked like. I didn't really know more than um, driving by a farm every once in a while in my life what even a dairy cow looked like. But um, that one conversation about clay um, triggered, you know, my entire career. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I really, I, I don't know if I ever had a chance to to say thank you to Dr. Willow for interrupting that day because I was I was ready to go to the food science department and work on vitamins uh, because I was I did not want to do amino acids like everybody else. Um, but uh, another story is that shortly after that, uh, right before I moved to North Carolina, I asked Dr. Willow, um, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm a kid from the tropics, from the Caribbean. I really don't like cold weather. And he's like, man, it never gets cold in North Carolina. The weather is great. Um, that November, we had probably one of the worst <laughs> ice storms in the history of North Carolina. So I was like, wow, this is a great way to start a relationship here, long-term relationship. <laughs> the, the third one along those lines is we once tried to get OSHA to get us to pay for our respirators to go collect samples. And we sent a letter and they wrote back saying um, aflatoxin is not on a list of toxic compounds. So they didn't want to. So Dr. Willow said, go into the literature, get me a couple of papers of human exposure. And the first paper I get was of this lab in, I can't remember what, what university, where the graduate student had developed polyps in his lung from doing research in mycotoxins. So I was like, man, this is, this is going to be great from, from here on. So, um, we wrote a little document uh, and they finally approved the respirators for us, but uh but that that's that was the start of, of a very long career path, and I owe a lot uh, to Dr. Willow for being patient with me because it couldn't have been easy having uh, uh, somebody that that was uh, that green uh, in his lab, especially considering how applied uh, his work on. And uh, on my on my closing statements, um, I, I, I think I think I would like to see um, 
more work on the identification of better biomarkers of exposure. Um, I think if, if we are better able to identify exposure to toxins through animal tissues or animal samples, for being that urine mm -hmm. or blood or, or any other sample, we would first eliminate this um, error associated with sampling collection. That would be out of the, out of the, the equation. We, we've eliminated that immediately. Second, we would, we would have a really solid diagnostic tool, right? A guy calls you, I think I have a mycotoxicosis. You take a blood sample, take it to the lab, and you're able to say, yes, you do, right? Uh, but, but also thirdly, from a research perspective, these products that are designed to alleviate uh, toxicity could be very easily evaluated if we had consistent uh, biomarkers. And I think we're getting there. We're slowly getting there where, where there's better and better biomarkers. But I would like to get to a point where those are not uh, tough analytical procedures to be done with very high-end equipment where we can actually do it on on an on-farm or at a university lab level for, for, for research and diagnostics. So uh, again, I, I want to thank yeah, Balkan for giving me the opportunity. I've actually never been in a thing like this, and so I feel like I'm I'm important. Uh, so uh, I, I thank you for, for the opportunity and, and also the uh, giving me the opportunity to talk to Dr. Whitlow again has been uh, longer than it, than it should be. So uh, uh, I appreciate you guys for, for facilitating that. No, you're very welcome. You know, I'm going to agree with Clay. This has been a real treat. I've enjoyed the stories. I've enjoyed uh, the learning. Uh, you know, it's an important subject, and I appreciate you guys breaking it down for us. It's a subject that's important for all species, and so I think it's going to be uh, very interesting for our entire uh, audience. So I want to thank you. I also want to thank our our loyal listeners, right, for stopping by once again to spend some time with us here at the Real Science Exchange. I hope you had some fun. I hope you learned something. And I hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.